Hey y'all, this episode was recorded on Zoom, so the audio quality won't be as lovely as our usual stuff. Hope you'll stick with us because the guests and conversations are still fantastic. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to Inquiries. You may be asking yourself, what is this podcast about? Well, inquiries are questions. We're asking questions about how facets of libraries and queer community intersect, but make it gay. We are your haunting guides. I am Shannon Prukop, she, they. And I am Michael Dunbar-Rodney, pronouns he, him. I am Lisa Pouchot, pronouns she, her, Aya. And I am Dakri Lambert, pronouns she, her. And uh, we have joining us today, uh, William, the creator of Hello from the Hallowoods podcaster. Uh, and we are extremely pleased that they have decided to uh, join us here on our podcast. Uh, William, thank you so much for being here. Of course, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, so, uh, I am a huge fan of the Hallowoods uh, podcast, uh, and I have uh, introduced uh, my fellow casters here uh, to to it. Uh, although Shannon, did you know about it beforehand? Yeah, Shannon knew about it beforehand. I definitely, I definitely did. So, uh, William, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more uh, about yourself and about uh, the creation of the podcast? Absolutely. Um, let's see. I am currently a queer horror writer. Um, in addition to making the show, I'm also working on novels that are uh, somewhat related to it. Um, but when I was first setting out, I was working a marketing degree, um, and I was not in love with that marketing profession. Um, I knew that writing was something I wanted to do. I knew that um, at the same time, like exploring these themes of queerness and horror was something I wanted to do with that work. But I figured that it would be very difficult to just start shopping around a novel and like try and get that published as a first time author. Um, so the idea occurred uh, to attempt that through the audio medium instead um, and offer a story that anyone could listen to for free that people could tune into every week uh, to sort of hear updates and revisit these same characters as they go on the journeys. Um, and I thought it would be a fun way to improve my writing and at the same time, hopefully have some people tuning in and like engaging with the story in real time. Um, the idea really appealed to me. So after flipping through like five different possible mediums to try and tell this story, uh, audio fiction was the one that I really settled on. Um, and at this point, I've been doing this for two and a half, uh, coming up on three years. Um, as we sort of near the end of our third season of the show, um, and with any luck, I'll have the first tie-in novel coming out sometime next year, if I'm very lucky, uh, to like move through that process quickly. Um, so yeah, that's uh, a little bit about me. Oh, thank you. The almost uh, three-year anniversary. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Great, great way to celebrate uh, potentially getting published. Uh, congratulations, by the way. Uh, so that's a lot of work. Um, but uh, one of the things actually that uh, additional uh, audio that my coworker found was uh, an interview that you did um, regarding uh, Pride Month. Uh, and Dakri, I think you had a quote that you found particularly uh, impactful. 
Yeah. Hi. And before I go on to that, I just want to say, um, I have <laughs> attempted several times to listen to the podcast and I just find your voice so soothing that if I listen to it at night, I end up falling asleep or <clears throat> my ADHD is so bad that I just can't follow along. But Lisa sent me a wiki for the the podcast and I've been reading through it and I'm just really excited about your books because for me, that's a medium that my brain can handle. And I just think your brain is so beautiful. So I'm really excited to have your work published so I can indulge in it in the same way that Michael and Shannon have been able to through the podcast. That's very sweet. Um, and before you get onto your question, I'll say a, a surprising number of people use this show primarily as a sleep aid. I'm not sure what it is about it, but there are it's some, your voice. <laughs> some of our lovely listeners are like, I've never finished an episode completely, but I love this show so much. Um, and then secondly, uh, that is one of the reasons we uh, have like early on, I wanted to make sure that we're providing actual transcripts for every episode as well. Um, that way, not only people who just like to follow along, but people with audio processing disorders or, you know, people who, who are hard of hearing are able to like enjoy the show to some degree anyway. Uh, but I definitely relate when it comes to like reading things online versus a book, uh, a paper book is still my favorite way to read. Um, so yeah, I, I feel you on that front. Okay. So the, the part that we want to ask you about from the video that we found, Lisa actually found it when going through your YouTube videos for the podcast. And it was a message that you had put out about pride, specifically during pride month. And so I want to read a portion of that, that really stood out to me. All of it was really heavy, but beautiful and also very validating and just felt really close to home. I think for all of us, as queer people, a lot of our struggles are very similar, even though we live very different lives. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. <clears throat> and so the piece that I want to ask you about primarily, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read the section that I want to talk about. Um, you tell your, your listeners, this is supposed to be Pride Month, a celebration of queer joy, but it feels harder to celebrate this year when queer communities across the U.S. are under attack. We generally are, but the violence our present time in our present time is shocking and heavy. Hate is powerful, and it wants to see queer people erased from public life. It begins with erasing queer stories, and a world without queer stories looks like the environment I grew up in, where the very existence of queer people was a mystery. And I think that that piece in specific really stuck out for me professionally because we talk about this a lot amongst the four of us. It is so important in our roles to be out and visible as also queer people, right? Michael says all the time, we don't just come into work and leave our queer at home. <laughs> like we are queer and we are professionals in this space. And I think that's really important. And I, I want to just kind of dig into that a little bit more, what that looks like for you what that looks like for us. Um, I know for me, I work with young people a majority of my days and the amount of young people that I have had tell me you're the first older gay person that I know and they get to see that I get to grow up and I get to be gay and you know things can be happy 
that's that's really big for them. And so it's really important for me to never hide that part of myself because I want them to know that things can change and do change when you get into environments where you're supported and you're loved and you know that your existence isn't just like this mystery or this dream that you have for the future. It it, it can be real. A hundred percent. And as, as far as what that looked like for me, like I grew up in a situation where um, I didn't, I didn't have any exposure to the world, really, like everything, all the, uh, you know, books and media that I had available was regulated through the lens of these, you know, very um, conservatively religious parents. Um, I didn't, all the friends that we had were processed through like whether those friends would be a good influence. Um, all of the people that we knew were like people that had been sort of approved because they fit within the purview of like this homeschooled, uh, very fundamentalist like uh, worldview that they wanted to shape. And as a result, I didn't know any queer people uh, for the majority of my young life. Um, I grew up only knowing of them as a hypothetical and only knowing of them as someone, you know, that was on like God's big sin list. Um, and so it was a, a really difficult period, like emerging from, you know, what was almost like a cult environment uh, out into the real world at like 16 or 17. Um, and then having to realize like, oh, my worldview has been like completely defined by this up to this point, even if I'm not part of this anymore, like the way that this has skewed my perception and skewed my feelings lasts a long time. Um, and so like learning about queer people and learning about queer life and queer joy was something that just took so much time to process because I was starting from scratch. Um, and that's something that could have been avoided if I had had access to the kinds of stories that I'm trying to tell today, the kinds of stories that I get to read now. Um, like I could have grown up knowing what all that looks like. Um, and I could have been, I could have found my own self so much sooner. Um, so that's one of the kind of reasons why I focus on queer storytelling specifically um is because i want to do that kind of story that someone in my situation would be able to read and be like oh maybe i feel this way and maybe it's okay if i did um i do want to say i in listening to it especially the intros to each episode um are so poignant and sometimes such great encapsulations of identity like episode two dogs intro with the the crystalline dog i honestly teared up i was like yes this is that's what non-binary can look like. Um, also made me think of Emma Frost, side other thing. <laughs> uh, but on 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 that subject of, you know, I wasn't raised quite as, as sheltered, but it was still pretty bad. And coming into it later feels weird because uh, it seems like everybody else already knows, already has all the words. And you're like, um, maybe, I don't know, possibly it could be this. Hang on. Um, but on a related note, queer joy. What does that mean to you? What does that look like to you if you hear the phrase? Yeah, I mean, I expect if you ask any queer person, you're going to get like a slightly different interpretation. But what queer joy 
for my particular background, at least looks like, is the opposite of queer guilt. <laughs> it's like you come from a situation where the idea of being queer is so skewed in this idea of something you should feel ashamed of, something that you need to seek repentance for, something that is inherently sinful and bad. Uh, and then, you know, all the people in your life at that stage are telling you that's something you need to avoid, it's something you need to change. If you do feel any of these feelings, you need to keep it very quiet and you need to keep it very contained. Maybe, sure, whatever you non-binary, you could be non-binary, but just please don't tell anyone, don't change your pronouns, don't change your name, like just be normal on the outside so we can ignore what's on the inside. Um, and for me, queer joy, it looks like the opposite of that and being able to trust as bravely as you feel, express uh, how you feel to the outside world, be able to walk around in your own skin, um, and be able to show the world the person that you feel like on the inside, um, and not, I think, be influenced or dampened or suppressed by kind of the environment around you. Um, so queer joy for me looks like being proud of those things and being open with those things um, and sort of presenting the world with the the face uh, that was always yours to begin with. I love that. Thank you so much. I want to ask you about one other piece in that that kind of ties into your your idea, your feeling of queer joy, which is this idea of being free from the shame that you grew up with or like, you know, the opposite of guilt of how you felt growing up and having these feelings and not necessarily being able to be yourself. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now in our profession is these stories are trying to be hidden again, right? These folks are wanting to bury these stories. And for me, that feels very scary for varying reasons. But one of those is because sometimes the only access that young people have to see themselves is through literature or media. And that is such a critical piece of our work. And I think it's so important. You know, there's a quote that says, shame dies when stories are told in safe spaces. And I just think that books and media provide such a safe medium for that to happen in that I'm just really thankful that so many queer stories exist on paper now and exist through media, like what you put out, you know, that didn't exist when we were younger to the capacity that it does now. And that's something we talk about a lot too. And uh, I think all of us remember the first time we saw ourselves reflected in some type of literature or medium that we were consuming. And I, I know that there are listeners of your podcast that don't have other outlets like you did, but that can see themselves and know that, you know, they're not the only ones and they're not shameful for being who they are. Right. And that one day maybe they can be who they are fully without having to hide that part of themselves. So I think it's really important that you do this kind of work. And I think that this kind of work supports our work, right? Because we can only do so much in our professional capacity and depending on, you know, who is guiding your organization, if you're a library, that 
makes a world of difference too, you know, but you as a free person can do what you want with what you're producing. And I think that our two pieces of work really go hand in hand, hand in hand and supporting each other. And I, I just want to say thank you for doing what you do because it is really important. A hundred percent. And likewise, like there, I'm continually amazed now in the literary space in general that very queer stories are, I mean, looking at the uh, the Twitter drama with this is how you lose the time war uh, a month or two back. Um, and the fact that this essentially sapphic love story, genre bending piece of fiction, um, you know, was at the number one Amazon bestseller list for fiction, I think, um, like that would have been sort of unthinkable to me back, uh, you know, in when when I was uh, <laughs> when I was growing up. Um, and in uh, in particular, um, I've been really thrilled as I've gotten into this space to see how queer and how celebratory the audio fiction space is in particular. Um, I think we owe some debt of gratitude uh, to a show called Welcome to Night Vale. Uh, it was one of the first horror fiction podcasts uh, to really pick up on a like a serial nature where you tune in every week and get the same characters. It established a lot for the format, but it also established like 13 years ago, I think, uh, that queer representation was something that was going to be present in the space and it was something that was going to be okay in the space. Um, and like they were, they set that bar for queer representation in audio fiction so early um, that it's really become a little bit of a haven for queer storytellers since, um, it's hard to shake a stick and not hit a show that doesn't have some kind of queer representation, uh, within like the horror audio drama sphere. Um, so I'm very thankful to see that. And it's incredible to me that like all these stories are getting told. It is true also that, you know, under the pretense of, this, uh, you know, kind of libel that's thrown at the gay community uh, in, uh, you know, 2023, that certain parties are trying to restrict books from libraries or trying to ban essentially what reading material is available to kids. And it's not exclusive to the queer community. Um, you know, we also see attempts to erase uh, Black history that way. Um, you know, attempts to like sort of sweep certain things under the rug by removing children's material that talks about those things in a way those kids could understand. Um, and like, I, it's not that they're wrong because the minds of kids really are shaped by the material that they come in contact with early. Um, and if that material teaches them about the world in a certain way, that might stick with them for life. Um, if they learn things in fiction at seven or eight years old, they might remember that forever. If they were to see a non-binary character in a show, then uh, five years later, they might be like, oh, you know, I have a point of reference for this feeling that I have. Um, you know, I remember reading a story about that. I could always see myself in that character. Now I understand why, I guess. Um, and like when you take away those sources, then the only narrative that you're left with is the narrative that, you know, uh, I, these conservative parties or white supremacist parties or what have you would like to be enforcing. 
Um, and so having these diverse stories available is uh, crucially important um, because this stuff has the potential to shape the hearts of the next generation. Um, and I think that's really what the battle is being fought for when it comes to what books are being banned for appropriateness or what have you uh, in our presentation. I don't know if y'all have seen what's happening in Houston right now, but it's truly horrifying. Um, the state took over the ISD and is now getting rid of libraries and turning them into, I think it's called discipline centers. That's a, that's a whole, yeah, that's a whole other, um, but yes, uh, it's, it's absolutely wild um, that it's, it's not about, it's not about the LGBTQ community. It's about controlling the narrative um, and it's incredibly frustrating. Um, I will say as far as Welcome to Night Vale, I did get Welcome to Night Vale vibes from Hallowoods. There's that, that narrator who is semi-omniscient and kind of quirky and we cut to different segments and it, it made me very happy because I loved Night Vale. Um, and it's a great format. Why not do it? Uh, <laughs> there was something uh, else I was going to say. Go, Michael, go. I was going to say, um, so one question I do have, uh, because I, I'm a huge fan of podcasts and uh, Welcome to Night Vale is actually one of the first that I listened to. A friend a friend introduced me to it and I was hooked. Um, is uh, why, the, why the horror format? Um, and I ask this also because I realized uh, a while back that, you know, I listened to all these podcasts and they're all queer and I'm like, Oh, they're also like almost all horror podcasts in one form or another. Uh, Hallowoods, Night Vale, um, Unwell, uh, Silt Versus. Um, so what, what prompted you to decide to use the horror format too? Oh dear. Um, so I, there, there's so much, there's so much you could say on this topic. Um, so before before I go on a big rant and I lose like all my points in in bullet points, I would say there's a couple things generically, and then there's a specific reason for me. Generically, um, there's something to be said for the way that horror has always pitted the normal against the other. Um, you know, whether it's a Frankenstein or a Dracula, um, you know, or a werewolf or a Mothman. Um, there's often the narrative that normal life is happening and then something transgressive comes in and needs to be destroyed. And queer people seeing themselves in that, instead of identifying with the mob with pitchforks as they probably should, they identify with whatever the Frankenstein or the, the werewolf or the Babadook is. And then for them, it becomes a story of wreaking havoc on some mundane lives, uh, which many of them can relate to anyways. Um, so queers love horror, uh, <laughs> you know, long standing, long before audio drama. Um, I think secondly, um, again, there's been a nurturing of queer narratives within the horror audio drama space. Um, so I think for a certain number of people, they come into shows like Welcome to Night Vale or the Magnus Archives and they see, oh, there is queer representation in these things. This is like a safe space. I, if I want to tell some stories that are in the same area, like it's going to be, okay, I know there's an audience. I know there's people here just like me who want to listen. Um, I will say for me specifically, um, I frowned on horror for a long time. 
Um, I thought it was the domain of like sort of petty slasher movies. And it was all about people who like, you know, practical effects blood from the 80s. And I, I didn't really understand like what the nuance behind horror is. Thought it was just to be scary. I wasn't particularly interested in it. Um, and so, and I didn't grow up watching a lot of horror for aforementioned reasons. So uh, as a result, it took me a while to really step into this genre. Um, I think what changed it for me was that originally I was spending a lot of time in animation. I wanted to uh, be the next Rebecca Sugar or Pendleton Ward. Um, I was pitching ideas for animated shows uh, and I still love animation. I love hand-drawn animation so much. But while I was sort of doing my due diligence and watching as many of these shows as I could, um, I came across a show called Over the Garden Wall um and that is a show that is intrinsically a folk horror story but it's wrapped in the guise of something that is musical something that is designed for children something that is very sweet at heart but also still horrifying um and there was something about the balance between the uh, sort of a very frightening and like very kind nature of that show that really piqued my interest um, I started to get into more horror series after that, and I began to realize, and I, I think a, a really nice example of this is the film The Babadook, which uh, was picked up by the, the queers as well, but um, in, I came to understand that sometimes these stories offer an opportunity to look at real life through a lens that we otherwise wouldn't have access to or through the darkness of whatever the horror story is to explore something related to the actual things that we go through. Um, the Babadook, uh, and, you know, not, I, I, I think it's late enough in the timeline that we can spoil the Babadook, but um, there, on its surface, you know, that's a movie about a monster hunting a family. Uh, you know, there's a picture book involved. There's a lot of screaming children. Um, you know, it's a parent's nightmare. But um, beyond that, it is also a story about grief. And once you look at it through that lens, you begin to realize that the way the Babadook behaves in that movie and all of the actions that it takes regarding this family is also in some way a metaphor and an exploration for the way that grief leaves an impact on, you know, the members of a broken family left behind. Um, and that kind of storytelling really got to me because it was an opportunity to talk about these things, but through the veil of fiction and through the veil of the fantastic and the terrible. Um, and so when it came to uh, sort of what I wanted to focus on in my own writing, I had done a couple stories that were, uh, you know, got published in various like little anthologies and um, uh, publications, but they were mostly just sort of gen generic horror fare. And I was like, this is not quite where I want my focus to be. I want to be telling specifically queer narratives. And what horror provides is an opportunity to look at queer issues through the lens of this fiction and to explore some of these things that would be difficult to talk about otherwise um and to kind of go through the darkness in some of those moments um and hopefully find some light on the other side of those things 
Um, and so that was really the idea that prompted Hello from the Hallowitz was trying to cross writing about queer themes and queer topics um, with sort of takes on horror tropes that we've seen over and over again for, you know, 40 or 50 years. I just Googled it. Babadook came out in 2014. That's, I don't know why that hurt me, but it did. Go ahead, Lisa. Oh my gosh. I, I actually love the book, that series or the movie. Um, I feel like my, I grew up, um, watching horror my dad loved horror and now it all makes sense to me because he's was also queer and <laughs> it all ties in now and my mom hated it um that we watched every horror movie but um i want to just chime in really quick about your pride of retrospect um you also stated that we use and you use stories and art to identify our place in the world. And you kind of just um, discuss that right now. And so without giving away any spoilers for any new listeners, because I will be honest, I am new to podcast, <laughs> like listening to them. I'll, I've been asking uh, my colleagues, like, what's the starter point for me? So anyone who's just starting out, um, any new listeners for you, William, uh, I don't want to give it away, but we noticed a few librarians in the series, uh, such as Jonah's father and um, a couple other things that have to do with libraries. So what was your process in forming these characters and how has libraries uh, shaped your life? Yes. Um, in the show, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say it shows up in uh, episode two, I think, for the first time. Um, there is a library called the Downing Hill Public Library. Um, it is a bit of this series answer to, I mean, both library horror in general is something that I love, but on top of that, um, a bit of an answer to the sort of trope of the magical school as well, um, or the magical university. Um, Downing Hill in this story is a place where a lot of the books that you would expect to see in horror franchises, you know, Lovecraft has a couple notable horror books. Uh, you know, Evil Dead has the Necronomicon. Um, but Downing Hill is the kind of library where all of these books have been carefully removed from public life uh, because they were destructive and cause evil wherever they go. And then they've all been conveniently stored in one place. Um, and they're on the plus side, you know, they are like safe there and they are kept away from influencing the public sphere too much, but also they tend to have kind of a terrible effect on everyone who is, uh, who, who works there long enough and it it may not be the book's fault so much as the management's fault um but there are some organizational issues at play at downing hill unfortunately um but yes that is born i think from just my love of libraries um growing up you know I, there wasn't much of a library that i had access to but what books i was able to sort of secure from that um was a little bit of a, a look into the world, a, lo a look into fiction that wasn't quite so curated and quite so micromanaged. 
um, because you know it's I think easier to control what books end up in your house permanently versus what books your kids are checking out at the libraries or even what they're reading between the shelves while you know you're there for an hour like walking around. Um, and so books like the series of unfortunate events that I probably wouldn't have gotten to like see otherwise I was able to like read binge through that whole series and that probably affected me for life um and so yeah I I, I adore libraries um and especially libraries with uh very old or very interesting architecture very formidable shelves you know mazes that you can get lost in uh all that kind of thing um so yeah there there's a little bit of that um the romanticization of libraries as well uh within Downing Hill um it's just I if I if I had to live somewhere in the Hallowoods I'd probably curl up by a window there and just uh spend my the rest of my days reading uh yeah I absolutely loved actually a series of unfortunate events growing up um and I I get what you mean that's uh about kind of sneaking books that's how I ended up reading like Science of the Lambs at 11 um but uh which probably explains a lot more than I'm really, really interested in revealing. But um, so it's it's one interesting because um, I'm wondering how did you uh, to to piggyback off of Lisa's question, how did you envision the people who worked at Downing Hill uh, Library? Um, uh, yeah, actually, let's go with let's go with that, and then I'll have a follow up. Actually. <laughs> Mixa Wellman, this is an intervention for the way you've written every librarian in this show. There's secret some, reason. Exactly. We, 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 have some, we have some grievances to discuss. Um, now we've gotten to the heart of the matter. Yes, exactly. Uh, I well, I hate to I hate to say this to a room full of librarians, but there's very few good librarians in in this show um, that we've met a uh, notable few uh you know you mentioned jonah's father uh he was a former librarian slash uh teacher at uh, this school uh he's been sort of horribly affected by an artifact that he took home um there's uh there's a director who is if you had to point at, at a, a problem in the place it's probably her uh, she's very interested in using everything that she's hoarded to specifically direct certain people to do certain things and kind of expand her sphere of influence. And that's probably not what a learning institution is about, but she has kind of co-opted it from the original owners. Um, and then there is, you know, a couple of like professor types who live and work in the library, um, teach classes in addition to tending the material. Um, and if they do have a heart of gold, it's very small and very hidden beneath a lot of dust, uh, that lives in the ribcage. Uh, so you are somewhat lacking in great library representation. Um, and then there's the, the great static headed librarian that, you know, guards the entrance. Um, so yeah, no, I'm sorry. You're, uh, you're, you're pretty screwed for good options there. Uh, I mean... Fair enough. Um, there, there are are worse things than being associated with an amazing like magical school. Um, <laughs> but part of the reason why I was asking uh, is one of the uh, things we kind of try to do in the podcast, uh, in addition to intro introducing our audience to 
uh, cool new things to listen to is just also give them an idea of the the queer person behind uh, what they do. And librarians as a whole, uh, queer librarians aside, um, we talk about this in our first episode where it was just like when I first was introduced to the idea of like, oh, going to school to be a librarian, of uh, being, oh, that's a thing you do. Um, and And kind of realizing like the the people behind the desk um and sometimes i wonder uh as because libraries are changing as an environment um but uh i think we've rarely asked like wait what are the perceptions of librarians um mm-hmm. uh we are we are so much stranger than most people think but uh <laughs> um so yeah so that was that was uh kind of why i was asking um i was just excited you had a librarian there at all um I- I, I, I will say, like, the the thread of this library and its effects, like, although maybe not uh, entirely positive in the first, like, three seasons of this show, um, it, is, it is something that's funny to me because in a certain light, a lot of the magical knowledge that people have, the knowledge about specific, like, topics and the plot and the show that they need resides in this library. Uh, and as a result, like people are able to gain access to these certain things. Um, and like, it is a little bit of like a sphere of influence that just most people in the community have felt its effects in one way or another. Um, now that, those might be evil magical effects for now, but you know, it is still a part of the community in its own right. Um, and also the topic of like, uh, where it goes in the future, hopefully will be a more positive place. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, I, I will. I will also mention uh, in the upcoming One Hundred Eyes in the Dark, uh, more normal libraries play a bigger part, and we do meet a nice librarian for once. So you have that to look forward. I I think it's really funny that you talked about horror as a genre being very queer friendly and welcoming of queer people, and how queer our profession is that and people don't even really know um so yeah it's funny and like i don't even know if when you put librarians and libraries in to your work you even knew that but it is it's beautiful and ironic and it makes perfect sense for us as queer librarians that our profession which is so queer if you're on the inside you know that is in that space. Why do you think it is that the library, um, I hesitate to say industry, because I'm not sure that's quite correct, but why is it that the library's profession has attracted so many queer people? Um, And do you think that's always been the case, or is that more of a recent development in sort of modern librarians? Um, uh, Yeah. so I wouldn't call it an industry because that would imply we make money of any kind. Uh, <laughs> any, li- any librarian can tell you, oh, no, <laughs> no. But anywho, uh, joking aside, um, I think part of it is because, uh, personally, it, it's the first place you would go to look for information. Um, in in uh, the days before Google, um, which uh, all of us remember, I think, um, was uh, uh, it was the only place to to find things. And so I listened to another podcast called Making Gay History, 
And, and what surprised me about a lot of the interviews um, was I was expecting uh, a, a lot of stories involved, you know, like being uh, cast out of your family and, and other struggles like that. And they did. Um, but the most consistent thread was, uh, people thinking, oh, I was the, I was alone or I was the only one. Um, and until they find either like a book or, or a group or, or something like that. Um, and, uh, reading Alison, uh, Bechtel's graphic memoir, um, that was the first place she looked like, oh, she realized I can look up homosexuality in the library um and uh fortunately the catalog has vastly improved since then but um i think part of it is just uh it's the first place you could go to find yourself in a way or find yourself reflected and then probably i feel it shoots off from a desire to make that available to other people or to find other people who are looking at the same things uh, you are. Um, and and I for me personally, that's kind of where where it comes from. Um, I know I know the American Library Association was the first uh, professional organization to advocate for gay rights, um, a fact I am extremely fond of. Um, so I I think uh, it may just grow from a need for community and a need to know and to to uh find others like yourself absolutely i think uh, it's also and, oh go ahead uh, well and before we move on shout out to allison bechtel's fun home you can see so much of myself in that and it's such a lovely piece of uh piece of work and uh, insight into her life and then also shout out to uh, Craig Thompson's blankets uh, for much the same uh, in a religious sense rather than a queer one. Uh, but uh, yes, you were going to say, Shannon. And my experience of the library field is we're all weirdos. This is a field that attracts unusual people. <laughs> we tend to all have strange hobbies or, you know, we came to this from a sudden, another career or like it's it's something about library work that attracts a certain kind of person. Um, and I think that has naturally meant that queer people are like, oh, nobody cares who I am attracted to because they're like, oh, librarians are weird. We don't talk to them. Um, or just because like in general, you get a room of librarians together. We're just going to be very unusual people. Um, so I feel like that's a little bit of it, too. I think it's so cool that a space... I, I'm not sure that one would have thought any sort of general bias about librarians other than the glasses and sort of pencil skirts that they get attributed to in, in fiction. But beyond that, um, I think it's so cool that that's become sort of a, uh, a safe community for uh, queer people and also for weirdos with strange uh, interests. We love to see it. Uh, yes, since you can't see us, listeners, all four of us are wearing glasses. <laughs> Just so happens that we blind. I can't, I have astigmatism. Been wearing it since the third grade, and I feel like I have permanent indentions in my nose from wearing glasses all my life. But um, <laughs> speaking of which, uh, 
I feel like growing up, especially in high school, when I started to, I guess, I don't know, go through this stage of like, I'm different from everybody else. And I would go hide in the library at my high school and just read all the books um, available to me that I was interested in and um, music tied into some of the books I was reading. And um, and then some of the books like um, Please Kill Me, which Dakri and I both uh, said that we enjoyed when we were teenagers, um, talked a lot about music and introduced me to Blondie and introduced me to this whole new world in New York that I didn't know existed because I'm this, you know, Mexicana from Texas and um, my parents didn't listen to that. <laughs> well. My dad listened to some cool stuff, but, you know, most of the time, what I'm saying is, is that I feel like as we came into this career, most of us have had that feeling of, of feeling alone or othered and books were our friends. <laughs> um, and so I feel like that, that really tied into how, how safe we felt at the library or I did um, and how I kind of wanted to revisit that and give back to the community um, that really needs us right now. A hundred percent. And I think especially for those of us that weren't, at, by the time I was growing up, the internet was not really a thing up until sort of my last few teenage years. Like I didn't grow up having, I, I, I think if I was allowed, I could log on and like send an email and then log off again. And that would be like, sort of my internet access complete. Um, but, you know, it's so it's very at that time, like the library was one of the only places I could go for like sort of unmonitored uh, stories that, you know, I, I could read. Um, and it was really like a way to explore the world outside of my own sphere. Um, it's interesting now in this day and age where every eight year old has a TikTok account that um you know uh, young people are so able to like go connect with resources on their own um and to some extent i feel like audio fiction is one of those spaces that although it's a very niche crowd one of those spaces that they have been able to go find um and be like oh there's like a little medium online where i can listen to queer stories told by other queer people who feel exactly like i do um and nobody can like tell me no or nobody can like hold that from me you know it's very freely accessible um and it's something that i think is also not it it's really i there's a number of our listeners at least who are like yeah you know i'm not out at home like my parents don't know but i listen to this show and you know they don't really get what it's about but it provides me a lot of comfort to be able to like listen to these stories um and, you know, that that's hugely rewarding. I'm glad it can be there for them. But I think it's neat that there's a medium that they can get to that similar to libraries, I guess, lets them take a little bit of a peek at the world beyond their, you know, immediate household. Um, uh, yeah, uh, for sure. And the I'm just thinking of like the sheer variety of the characters and and stories that you're you're telling in Hallowoods. Um, 
when I uh, applied to grad school for my MLIS, um, I had to do the statement of purpose, which was, oh my goodness, uh, that was intense uh, to write. But I was going in for archival work initially. That was my specialization. And I was trying, of course, to think of, okay, how do I grab their attention without it being dry and academic? And I was kind of looking into like, trying to self-examine why, why archives? Why did that snag me? Um, I do love the public library too, though, actually, to anyone listening, this is a great place. But, and so I, I opened my statement of purpose uh, with the line, we are bound by the stories we tell. Um, and I, I think sometimes we forget how powerful narrative is in, in shaping our perceptions um and in what gets shared um and uh i do remember growing up um i i fortunately did have uh was in a supportive environment but um because queer people as a whole um weren't generally like, talked about socially or anything like that um i didn't really understand what that was until i i found it um, myself. Uh, uh, I think we all have that piece of media or book uh, that where we saw ourselves for the first time. Um, but I found that even within the community, there were certain narratives that we told um, that did also exclude other parts of that community um, or other aspects of the community. Um, I remember uh, for Making Gay History, um, hearing an interview with one of the women on there and she was like, yeah, uh, at the time, lesbian society was like, you had butch and you had femme and like you were one or the other. Um, but as, as we find these spaces to um, have further access to more stories, more narratives, um, it broadens the, the scope of, of who we feel we can be and, and what we believe is possible um, so I think that is what draws me, uh, to the profession. I, it, it, there is a sense of, uh, a personal pride of making sure all these stories are available as many stories are available as possible. Um, and one of the things, uh, uh, I think is really cool about the podcast sphere is anyone can get into it and sustain it. Um, and more specifically, uh, one of the great things I like about, um, the Hollowoods, um, which by the way, I refer to as like cathartic horror, um, because while it is horror, it's not like super grim, um, is, uh, you've included so many various types of characters. And, um, I don't, I don't know if this is part of why you, you, um, framed it how you did or or in the setting that you did but um all the because of the supernatural nature there are various kinds of characters not just like in terms of gender or 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 sexuality but in terms of like what they even are like the the narrator is you know this cosmic being um it just feels like uh the horror opened up to the fantastic and provides so many options for being different um and was that actually was that something that you considered when doing a horror podcast uh before i answer the question i i would just love to ask has 
working in the library setting allowed you to become an avatar for any sort of all-seeing eldritch beings or is that specifically limited limited to archives and you feel like you've missed out i unfortunately feel like i have missed out um i am waiting for the eye to contact me at any time i'm i'm interested i'm there but please you know all-seeing uh-huh. eye the library field is ripe with people who'd love to be a strange little eldritch uh, nightmare. So, you know, any eldritch god looking for new fields, come uh, come and, like, call. Uh, you know, do something freaky with all the, the bookshelves, uh, pages wrestling. But um, that said, uh, in response... <laughs> One of the one of my favorite ways that I've seen some a listener sum up the show is Hello from the Hallowoods is a show that constantly asks um <laughs> like what does it mean to be human or is it okay? Uh is is it okay to to be this thing? And then the answer is always yes. Um and there is it's interesting in the Hallowoods, at least for me, because there is both literal queer people in the show. There are people who talk about on the show as being aromantic or asexual or uh, pansexual or polyamorous, whatever whatever that means to them. Um, but then on top of that, there's things that are queer, sometimes both literally and in metaphor as well. Um, Diggory Graves, for instance, uh, was one of the first characters that really graces the narrative. It was one of the stories that really made me want to tell the Hello from the Hallowoods. Um, and Diggory Graves is both non-binary, but they are also a Frankenstein's monster sort of thing, uh, you know, descended from a long line of uh, Karloff and Edward Scissorhands type tropes. Um, and as a result, like, they are both dealing with the non-binary feeling of sort of drifting in between points of gender identity um, or trying to find their own identity within that. And then on the plot side, they're trying to figure out their own identity as an amalgamation of all these different parts that comprise them and a little bit of all the different uh, people that they used to be. Um, And so as a result, like sometimes the metaphors get very mixed. Sometimes the representation is literal. Sometimes it's more inherent in the themes of the story. Um, and that's why, in addition to having people across a wide spectrum of sexualities, like and genders, uh, you know, some of these people are nightmare worms for the moon. Some of them are automobiles. Some of them are mothmen. Some of them are moth whisperers. Like uh, there's a character that's made all of knives. Like you know, there's Frankenstein monsters and ghosts and werewolves and demons and vampires and so on and so forth. Um, but that diversity in being, I think, fits very well with the diversity in being queer uh, that that we see in the show. So it's it's been fun to write on all accounts, um, and I'm always tickled when I'm able to fit some very strange horror trope that should not be able to like exist seriously with anything else, uh, and kind of bundle it into the show. I've been thrilled uh, in particular with a character named Ray. Uh, he is an automobile. He is very much harkening back to the uh, sort of like living car tropes that Twilight Zone did, that Stephen King's Christine did, I think. Um, 
And yet, like, despite the ludicrousness of having a car that talks and rolls around on its own, being kind of possessed, um, you know, I've, I'm thrilled that people not only enjoy this character as it fits into the world, but unfortunately, he's become a fan favorite. Um, <laughs> and so at this point, there's like a lot of very intense energy every time that this automobile rolls up into the show. But we love to see it. We love to see the support. I so I didn't grow up on horror much either. Um, so for me, car character, I went to Revolutionary Girl Utena. <laughs> you know, when your wife is also a car, perfectly normal things. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Uh... Yeah, I think I, I remember, Christine, uh, that Stephen King was awesome growing up the original it all of that i just i just love the genre um so speaking of podcast and and things that influence us over the years um do you remember your first possible audiobook or series that inspired your love for uh, narration and storytelling so um for example when i was growing up we only have PBS and things like that. So I'm a big Jim Henson fan. And so I don't know if you remember the storyteller, um, Jim Henson storyteller, but it's pretty amazing series. It's pretty old school, but um, wonderful narration. And I just wanted to know what inspired you. Yeah. Um, like I, 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 Specifically, there's probably two or three like points of reference um, that really made an impact for the actual narration of the show, uh, which I know is not quite the question, but a big quality of it comes from uh, watching The Twilight Zone because it was black and white, because it was made in like the 60s or something. Um, I was able to like get full reign to that because it was thought, you know, this is probably too old to really have any like modern offensive material in it. And so I watched every every Twilight Zone episode. Um, and The Twilight Zone is a wonderful piece of fiction, although it is television. Um, it really cemented early on the idea that, you know, Rod Serling is using these pieces of science fiction and these pieces of horror to talk about modern day issues um, or issues that were modern for his time and sadly are still modern for our time. Um, and so that really stuck with me. And I think that influences the show to a big extent um, because Hallowoods looks at things through the very similar lens of fiction sometimes. Uh, but that said, one of the consistent things in A Twilight Zone um, is that Rod Serling is this unnamed narrator that stands in the middle of whatever the scene, the opening scene is, completely unseen by all the mortal beings passing around him. Uh, and he narrates the beginning of that episode and what's happening. Um, and then usually shows up back at the end. But I really, that was really the trope that the narrator for the podcast, uh, Nick Ignick, is. Uh, he is that all-seeing, omnipresent, invisible narrator who is in there, in the scene with the people, but he is telling you what the story is. Um, but as far, so that really influenced the character of the show a bit. But as far as my first actual, like, audiobook type experiences, um, 
before podcasts, there were big binders of audiobook CDs that you would play one by one on long road trips. Uh, you know, you'd unclip that brittle plastic clamshell and you'd flip through those discs and they'd all be out of order and you'd be looking for number five and eventually you'd find it. And if you didn't, then you were just going to skip a couple chapters. Um, but we went through two big series in, uh, on our long car rides. And then when we ended, it would be right back to the beginning of something else. So um, unfortunately, I can't recommend either of these. Uh, because one of them was focused on the family, Radio Theaters, A Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and that is, to this day, one of the best renditions of Chronicle of Narnia I've ever heard. The voice acting is fantastic. It captures the last battle. That was the Avengers endgame of my childhood. Um, but unfortunately, Focus on the Family uh, currently puts all of its money towards anti-LGBTQ uh, effects in the USA. So... I can't recommend supporting them at this point, but I swear we listened to Chronicles of Narnia entirely, probably like 20 or 30 times. Um, on top of that, um, the other one, which I also can't recommend, was a series called Jonathan Park. That was very close to audio drama format. Um, it has different characters, a full voice cast that are talking back and forth. They use sound effects, they use scene setting, there's no narration, like from a third party narrator. Um, and so that was very early on an exposure to essentially what full cast audio drama looks like. Um, sadly, we're a one person show. And so we're, we cheap out and we use me for most of it. But um, Jonathan Park, uh, while a, a gripping drama for our age group, um, is unfortunately about a family of creationists who travel around the world uh, telling evolutionists why their ideas suck um, and debunking all of those petty evolutionary beliefs with the word of God and the power of love. Um, and so in retrospect, there's not a lot of great uh, themes there either. Um, but shout out to Miles Morgan, atheist villain extraordinaire, I'll always be my hero. And you know, some some listeners gonna like tap into that because honestly, I am the oldest one in our podcast group. Just to let you know, I have two older brothers. One was 1973, other one's 1977, and we're not that far apart. And so, because I had older brothers, I watched a lot of things that I had couldn't make executive decisions as being the younger sister on like GI Joe transformers, all of those things back in the day. <laughs> and so I watched twilight zone, um, late at night. We summertime was our, we stayed up till 2 AM slept in all of those things. So I totally <laughs> relate to a lot of the things you were saying because, um, part of my family was Catholic. And so my, my aunt would take me to like a half or Christian bookstore and I would get these books that I fell in. I know it was so odd, but I didn't know I was a kid. I'm like, Ooh, books. I loved books and I would pick out a book and I fell in love with these books called like Mandy's mysteries or something like that. And I kept them and I was scrolling through my garage and I found them and they are so racist. <laughs> It's like, 
like little house on the prairie style like let me get your indigenous in doctrine and take you to my church you you know native just oh bad just wow but i just loved like they went on these mystery like going through a tunnel situations and so i totally get what you yes thank you go for daiquiri for pulling up a screenshot sorry listeners but you couldn't see it uh that's exactly it and i love them and i would read them in one day but will i would i recommend them now no so I feel you on that, William. Thank you for sharing that. But you know what? These books, you know, they taught us something, didn't they? Yeah. Sometimes what not to do. A new kind of cautionary tale, really. <laughs> mm -hmm. while, while we're on it, though, I will, if anyone's like, oh, you know, I don't know where to start with a series from 1960 that lasted like hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Uh, there is one Twilight Zone episode that really left a mark on me uh, called Nothing in the Dark. Um, it's an episode about an old lady. Um, she is trying to keep visitors out of her house at all costs because she's terrified that death is going to show up um, and go to like, uh, you know, take her soul. Um, but then a delivery man shows up who's trying to like repair the electricity in her house or something. And so it's a dialogue between the two of them. Um, but there was such a tenderness and such a comfort in the like horror of that episode, um, that I really think back to every time I'm trying to like, think of what the tone should be for the Hollowoods. Um, and what the balance is between kind of the dark themes in the show and the love that like still persists uh, throughout uh, the story. Um, I do have a, a question now that you, uh, you are a storyteller yourself, um, uh, or at least a storyteller for a, a larger audience than uh, we probably envisioned when we first start telling stories. So. Are there things that you have done um, or that you wanted from a podcast or a narrative um, that now that you are the one doing the creating, um, you're like, oh, that actually is not a thing you should do or is not a good idea. Um, and an example uh, is as a patron, I would think like, oh, cool. A 24 hour library would be amazing and romantic as a librarian. I'm like, that is a logistical nightmare that I sh just do not want to deal with. <laughs> just no, not a great, not a great plan. <laughs> I would, I would go to that library so often. That would be wonderful. That'd be delightful, especially, you know, if not every uh, library, I suppose it's more of a bookstore thing to have some place you can get coffee within the establishment. But if the coffee and the library were both open 24 hours a day, that would be my heaven on earth. Um, but at the same time, I, I feel like that would have to come with more of reviving the community center aspect of a library. Because you would have some people, I expect, that just wouldn't leave the library. I would be one of them. But um, uh, that said, yes, there are certain things that from an audience perspective would be great in a podcast. Uh, there are some things that from a production perspective um i've come to regret uh and if not regret then understand the weight of um one of the 
when people ask me, as they sometimes do, for podcast advice, one of the first things I tell them is don't do a weekly show. Um, I am at my wit's end. Uh, I have to write a 40-minute podcast episode every week, record it, edit it for audio, uh, and then get it uploaded. And I have to do that while trying to edit piles and piles of novel text to try and get these books done. Um, and then I have to have a normal life with grocery trips and things like that, uh, unfortunately. And so as a result, uh, those three things keep me running at a frantic pace. Um, a weekly show is one of the choices that I made initially, and I wouldn't have done it any other way. Um, one of the beauties of a weekly show is that it enables people to tune in every week uh, for it to be a consistent part of their like podcast listening habits, um, for them to sort of still be on the edge of their seats uh, and be like, okay, I want to hear what happens next. I want to hear what happens next. Then they listen to the episode and then it's like, I want to hear what happens next. Um, and so I, I really wanted to keep that engagement. I really wanted people to have an experience that they could listen to that way. But it is so much work logistically. Um, one of the only reasons that it works is because I'm the only person on this show. Um, outside of occasional guest stars from other podcasts, um, you know, I provide the voice of the narrator. He has a convenient narrative reason why he also reads most of the characters' dialogue. So, you know, I've covered my bases there. Um, and as a result, like, I can rely on myself to get episodes in every week. But if I was working with a voice cast of five people or six people, I would, nobody would be able to keep up with this. Um, so as a result, like that is probably one of those things, not only that it's weekly, but it is constant. Uh, over the last three years, we've taken less than two months in breaks. Um, and so, you know, we are, we're coming out with 48 episodes a year weekly. Um, and so I think production pace is one of those things I would really advise podcasters to be cognizant of. Um, because it, there's going to be a point at the beginning, you're very excited and you don't care how much time it's going to eat up in your life, but there will come a point about three or four months in where suddenly you have other commitments. Suddenly you're taking on more work, you know, suddenly, I don't know, your dog is with child and you need to raise puppies or something. Um, and whatever those commitments look like, it's going to drag you away from your lost love of podcasting. Suddenly you're not going to be wanting to put a part-time job's worth of hours into it. Um, and there's a horrible historic trend of like half of podcasts not surviving past their like first couple of months, just because they front loaded so much work and then they didn't pace themselves and they burnt out and they quit. Um, so yeah, I, the first thing I do with any podcaster who approaches me about advice on starting their show is breaking down the math of how much time is it going to take you to make this? How much time do you want between your releases? You want to be consistent, but you want to be slow enough that you give yourself lots of time to achieve those goals. It's much, it feels much better if you make it every two weeks or every three weeks or every month. And then if you find yourself with lots of free time and enthusiasm, ramp it up rather than starting weekly, go on an eight month hiatus and then come back to monthly episodes. Um, so yeah, that's one of those things for sure. I think another thing that I would caution people on, um, which I also am, uh, have 
committed crimes against terribly uh, is not to overcomplicate your show. Um, Hello from the Hallowoods is an experiment in having over a hundred characters, uh, like a dozen moving parts in the plot at any given time. Um, I'm 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 really toying with with that concept, um, but I can't recommend it to anyone else. Um, it makes the show very dry. It makes the show very dense. Uh, and although I think we've done an okay job, like making it so that every storyline is distinct. Um, there are some people who just like don't quite click with the show um, and aren't used to like dry long format stuff and that's totally okay because who would be um, but that said uh, my other advice would be don't tell us about the world keep it focused on a few core characters we don't need to know the entire history of your magical city at the start um, just keep it with a small cast and let us learn about the world through their perspectives um, and that's generally going to be a better way to like grow the world of your show rather than like start with 50 different moving parts that nobody's going to be able to like keep track of. That's what note cards and string were designed for. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, oh, okay. Well, at least I know pacing wise, we did, we did one thing right for sure. When we started this, everybody, <laughs> uh, but okay. Yeah. Um, no, honestly, I, I feel like the, the podcast is definitely, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, but it, it feels very well blended and, and seamless in the way you bring it, uh, in and out. So you, you did, you did good. So don't worry. Don't, don't feel that, you know, that didn't work out so well. It did. Absolutely did. It's, and uh, I, I got to talk about this a little bit in a, a patron's Q&A recently, but it's a bit of a delicate line I'm trying to walk because there's certain places where it's like, okay, as we expand, people can slowly handle more and more complexity in the story. They can keep track of more things. There's been more recurring characters they can connect with. But sometimes that means that we're already at such a capacity. I don't want to burden people with trying to remember another 12 names out of the Blackwood Coven or another five librarians at Downing Hill who are just nice, normal people. Um, and so, you know, there's a bit, sometimes you'll realize like, oh, there's a whole community represented in the show by like two characters. Um, but that's to help just keep the memory burden down on the listener a little bit when possible. Uh, you were starting to say something there, Shannon. I was, and I don't remember. Um, so instead, what I'll say is, where can people find your work? How can we support you? How can we give you money? Let us give you money. Yes. Well, if you are listening to this, then you are probably listening to the wonderful media form known as a podcast. So wherever you are listening to this, you can open up a search bar and type hello from the Hallowoods. Uh, Hal is spelled like the hall in your house or maybe hallowed as in holy, if you're a nerd or a, a fundamentalist, um, and uh, woods like your average forest. Um, that said, uh, beyond that, hello from the hallowoods.com. Uh, you know, we've got a website there as well. Uh, so that's a second place you could go for links and such. Um, on top of that, uh, I do run a Patreon account uh, at patreon.com slash Hallowoods, I think. And that would be really the main uh, way that our show continues to run. 
Uh, early on, there was a choice that I don't want ads on this show. I don't want to have to interrupt my critiques of capitalism with reading ads for mattresses and meal boxes. Um, I don't want to have to like sponsor some brand of sneakers and then later make a public apology when those sneakers turn out to be produced by child labor or something. So uh, this is a show without ads. It's a show without corporate sponsors. It is run entirely by the 200 some patrons that continue to like make it possible. They're also paying for novels to happen. So thank you to each of those people. Uh, and if you want to support the show, uh, that's the best place to do it. Um, there's also weekly Q&A sessions that go uh, a lot like this conversation. So it's great. Love that. Well, that, I think, wraps us up for today. So thank you for joining us today. I hope you laughed. I hope we gave you things to think about. And I hope you keep asking questions. Until next time, queers. Yeah.